Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Hello, and you're back for another episode of High Energy Health. It is such a joy to welcome you here. As you know, each week on this show, we look at at activities, ideas, practices that can really shift your life. And we cover the spectrum from the latest research, a lot of material on the brain and how it affects the body, how consciousness is affecting everything we do from the molecules that our cells synthesize to the world around us. And I really want the show to be for you a resource and not only give you great and inspiring ideas, I also love sharing practical tools and tips. As you'll know, there are so many things you can do, often very simple things that will shift your life, shift the whole of what your external life looks like, and certainly shift the internal work of your awareness. As you shift your awareness, you find things shifting on the outside world level as well. And I so encourage you to do the practices that our guests recommend here. Just spending 15, 20 minutes a day committing to yourself, actually having you as a priority and prioritizing your well-being and creating that personal time is so powerful. I know I've just been talking to a few friends about doing meditation and several said, oh, I'm too busy. Like you don't have 15 minutes a day to just set up your consciousness for success. Everybody has that. And if you aren't making that, you're really losing one of your highest leverage points. So please do follow the ideas on the show and also apply them in your life. Have a piece of paper and a pen. If you remember what those are, your digital device is fine too. (laughs) Either or, but do what it takes to really apply these things in your life. Just one little idea can sometimes be a huge leverage point for change. So use the ideas you hear and find here on High Energy Health. Also make tuning in a part of your life. Every week we have a new episode and we have a huge number of people who are tuning in and listening and applying these things and using this as part of their positive media surround. So I know when I want to put on music, I put on music that really just delights me. The current, what I'm, I'm listening to a lot is Look for the Good in Everything by Jason Mraz. And when I'm not looking for the good in things, I put on that and I just push myself into a positive mood with that piece of music. So find positive media like this show and then fill your awareness with those things. So you are worth it. You are worth creating positive consciousness in your own head. And then it's worth seeing what that effect has on the world around you. So thanks for being here and make listening to High Energy Health a part of your week. My guest today is a dear friend named Kian Gohar. Kian is the author of the new Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Competing in the World of Work. He's also a former executive director of the XPRIZE Foundation and Singularity University, and has coached the leadership teams of many Fortune 500 companies on innovation, leadership, and the future of work. Kian, it is such a joy to have you here. Thank you so much, Dawson, for having me. I'm so excited to be part of this 
high energy uh, experience <laughs> to share with you and uh, your audience. Yeah, well, I know your energy will fit right in because whenever I'm with you, you're so bubbling full of ideas and creativity that it's just a, an explosion to be around you. And so this is your new big project for this book. And what, what brought you to thinking about this, approaching this, and then writing the book? Thanks for the introduction, Dawson. For the better part of the last 10 years, I, uh, like you mentioned, used to teach at Singularity University, helping executive teams and companies understand new technologies like AI, automation, robotics, and how it was all going to start uh, transforming all of our industries. And I became fascinated with this idea of the impact it was going to have on the future of work. And for a lot of people, that means, you know, automation is going to take away jobs. And for me, I started thinking about it and I said, the best way that we are going to thrive uh, living side by side in a bionic age with robots and automation is if we double down on the behaviors that make us exceptional as humans versus that as technology. So I shifted my focus about four or five years ago, looking at the future of work, but not looking at it from a technology perspective, instead looking at it from a human perspective. Instead of looking at exponential technologies, I really wanted to figure out what made exponential teams. And so if we go back about two years ago, March 2020 to the early days of the pandemic, I coach a lot of executive teams around innovation, leadership, and resilience, and nobody had a playbook for how to lead in a time of lockdown. Nobody knew how to you know, manage remote. And so my dear friend Keith Ferrazzi and I started hosting a series of town halls for specific functions at each company, chief financial officers, chief HR officers, chief learning officers. And we were trying to crowdsource in real time the best practices that people were using all across the country uh, in the hopes of really helping our community and our clients uh, thrive in a world of radical change two years ago. And we thought this would be a two-month project and it turned into a two-year project and we ended up doing a research project with Harvard Business School, where we interviewed over 2,000 executives from all around the world to really better understand what were the leadership practices that they were implementing in their teams to thrive during the pandemic era. And what does that mean for how we live and work in a post-pandemic context? So that's a little bit of a background of where I was and sort of how I pivoted and just very uh, blessed and grateful to have learned so much. I'm really excited to be here and share some of those learnings with you and your audience. No, that was only two years ago, Kian. And I'm just thinking back to my business my team and we used to teach all of our workshops in person and these are workshops to coaches and psychologists and doctors and nurses and we thought they had to be taught in person we, we were just insistent that there was no substitute for in-person learning and then the pandemic came along and said <laughs> you have to learn to do this virtually so we actually used some of the techniques from the harvard education department and they had this whole set of studies on active and collaborative learning we applied those to virtual learning we've done several clinical trials now comparing the results of our earlier classroom-based work now with our virtual classes and i'm stunned by the results because people are actually doing better in our virtual classes than they were in our in-person classes so yeah it can be done and it just turned the world upside down and we we've seen long lasting effects from this going forward. Absolutely. I think the the key learning you just shared, which is critical, is that it can be done well in a virtual and hybrid format, but you have to be really intentional about how you design for that. And the organizations and teams that I think really struggled over the last couple of years with Zoom and learning on Zoom or collaborating on Zoom were the ones who had a traditional analog 
way of thinking. And they just layered on top of that digital channel like Zoom. And they thought that would be the new world of work. And it really wasn't. And so from our research, we also interviewed about 2,000 teams to understand what were the key dynamics that made a high-performing team from culture and connectedness to psychological safety, innovation and decision-making. And the teams that really thrived in the pandemic really actually increased their levels on those rankings from around emotional connectivity, resilience. And uh, we were really interested in finding out why that was the case. And they had specific practices. And the key was that they unearthed the assumptions of what work meant, whether that was collaboration, whether that was team building, whether that was agility and experimentation. And they broke it all down. And they said, okay, if these are the tasks that we were trying to do in an in-person world, how can we not repeat the tasks, but how can we accomplish the goals, but in a different way using these digital tools? And those teams really thrived. And so it sounds like you were one of those teams that really stepped back and took a deep look at sort of what those learning learnings were and then created an experience that allowed your teams to really thrive in a online learning model. So congratulations. And uh, measurement is important. In science, we measure everything. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't want to know just subjectively that people were doing better. We wanted to actually measure it. So uh, that was the using uh, valid instruments to actually measure people's levels of various metrics and then actually compare them with each other and quantify the, the change. And so what we're now now going to do is we're actually going to be, re as we go back to a lot of, of in-person training, we're bringing the learning from the virtual actually into the in-person one now. I'd love to do another study to <laughs> evaluate those techniques used now in an in-person format. But, you know, just, just generally, the shakeups can be really creative and really useful. Yeah. And they are disruptive of course, but disruption, if you learn to ride it, can actually be your friend. Absolutely. And, you know, disruption is not new to our world. It's been going on, you know, for better part of the last couple hundred years with the advent of technology accelerating because of industrial revolution. And it's just going to keep on going. So how do we as humans and as teams as individuals really develop this mindset to be able to thrive regardless of what the future brings? And so when we interviewed these 2000 executives from around the world for our research, we pattern matched the learnings into four key behaviors that we found that teams that were most successful deployed. And they, they're going to sound kind of obvious, but they're actually maybe more difficult to put in practice than one might think. The first one is around collaboration and inclusion. And the second one is around agility, this experimentation. Third one is around this idea of resilience, which is really the yin to the yang of agility. And the fourth one is this idea of foresight. How do you start to look uh, around corner? And together, these four uh, leadership behaviors uh, come up to what we call radical adaptability. So how do you become a radically adaptable? human organization team to really be able to thrive regardless of what disruption brings into the future that is really a, the key that we were trying to research and understand and we identified some really really great stories and practices that we highlighted in our book that just came out a couple months ago and this is sort of what we are trying to help people develop is that yes uh, we are we're not going back uh, I don't like to use that phrase because I think we're going forward we're not going back to work we're going forward to work and I think it really falls upon us to take the workplace and innovations from the last two years and bring that into this new era, which is going to be a world of how do we live uh, in a hybrid world, uh, sometimes working asynchronously um, in different locations and virtually and sometimes together. And so uh, we're going to have new learnings, like you suggest, because we were really good at in-person, then we eventually got good at being you know, virtual. And now we have to be really good at hybrid, hybrid collaboration, which is the major focus of my work with executive teams is teaching them how do they thrive in a world of hybrid, sometimes together, sometimes not. I'd like to get an example from you, a practical example of, of a company you worked for and what effect it had to think that way and to apply those four principles. But I want to just back up to something you mentioned earlier 
earlier very, very briefly and get your opinion. So we've all been reading these predictions that because of automation, that jobs will disappear and overall employment will decrease. And so I remember the stories back in the early 1800s that the Luddites thought that the spinning jenny would put the working man out of work and they would smash these spinning machines in the early 1800s because they were afraid that automation would put people out of work. This, this has been a fear for a long time. I remember when I was using my first PCs in the 1970, personal computer, and it was like, this is this thing is so efficient. This would put, you know, we'll, we'll certainly only need one person. The job's fully done by 100 people. And this fear is recurring, but it never comes to pass. And it hasn't come to pass, pass for the entire Industrial Revolution. So I'm a bit of a skeptic about that. I don't know where you stand, but I'm, I'll, I'm curious to get your thoughts. Uh, I think that, uh, that the arc of that story is uh, 100% true. And over the last couple hundred years, as technology has automated different kinds of functions, certainly there have been disruptions to particular industries and to particular functions within those industries. And so in the micro context, I want to be mindful, yes, the people are actually sometimes really struggling with this disruption because their jobs have been impacted by it. In the grand arc of history, I think technology has actually created more jobs and allowed us to really thrive. But that's difficult to really put in context when people see that on an individual level, it is actually uh, impacting them. What's interesting is that AI really has accelerated for the last 10 years. It's not a new technology. It's been around for the last 30, 40 years. But because of these convergence of technologies around computational power, AI has really blossomed over the last, let's say, I would eight, nine years. And there was in the mid 2010s and until the mid 20, late 2010s, I think there was a really strong concern that AI was going to disrupt a lot of jobs. And I still think that is happening. But what's an interesting data point is that for the first time, in 2021, it was the first year that AI actually created more jobs than jobs that it disrupted. And what do I mean by that? And what I mean is that it actually created jobs that required people to have skills to be able to use artificial intelligence, for example, analysts or coders or things that required new skills to be learned to work in that environment. So Yes, some of those jobs that AI uh, automated from data entry and from processing were jobs that may not exist, let's say, in five years from now. But now we're having new jobs get created. And so this idea of technology disrupting jobs is not new. It's been going on for the arc of history. It does have an individual impact on the at the micro level for each person if is, they're impacted by that trend. But on the whole, I feel that technology is creating new opportunities. And so we have to really lean in and try to see the glass half full rather than see the glass half empty. So share with us the story of one company that really implemented that kind of change successfully. So one of the things I really love about the last couple of years is that people really experimented. And so I do a lot of work with larger companies, Fortune 500 companies, and also fast growing younger companies. The experimentation really really was at the heart of what we call radical adaptability. So if you remember back in the crisis days, it was pretty common for somebody to say uh, on a team, okay, John, you do this, Maria, you do this, uh, Jennifer, you do this, let's reconvene tomorrow, figure out what we still need to get done. And that was kind of like crisis management, right? And so that's some, that kind of agile experimentation is natural to startups and younger companies because that's they're in the business of creating the new. If you work at a more established organization, that kind of like consistent experimentation every single day day every single week is is not as common. And and frankly, one of the things that happened over the last couple of years was that this kind of agile experimentation became exhausting. You know, it's the heart of how do you innovate and disruption. But these constant experimentation, it is tiring. It is exhausting. People told me, I'm just exhausted from the last two years of constantly trying. And so the yin to the yang of this experimentation is how do you really build this level of resilience to be able to thrive and be able to climb the next hill that you want to go up rather than the, climb, the hill that you're on right now. So let me 
me share with you an example. There's a company I think everybody in your audience will be familiar with called The Home Depot. One of the uh, senior leadership folks on that organization, a woman by the name of Crystal Zell, she is the chief customer officer. And uh, during the pandemic, she realized that her team was just getting really exhausted for the same reasons we just mentioned. And she said, you know, if I'm trying to create this level of resiliency within my team, you know, people come to work with different levels of resilience. Some people have more financial resources and resilience. Some people have more family or social resilience. And so that we have to put those differences aside because we as a team have to make sure that we cross the finish line together. So she came up with this really elegant solution to first diagnose her team's level of resilience to make sure that she can diagnose it and then make an intervention if need be. And so she asked her team uh, to type into chat once every two weeks from a, uh, on a scale of one to 10, one being really low, 10 being really high. What is your level of anxiety? And also on a scale of one to 10, one being low, 10 being high, what is your level of energy? And the reason that she did this was because she really wanted to understand where her team was. And so, you know, for example, Tom would consistently rank around like a three or four, Mary would rank around like a four or five. It didn't really matter where the individual scores were, but over time or the trend, if sometime all of a sudden Tom was usually like a three or four spiked to a seven, this gave uh, Crystal a really interesting insight that there was something going on in that person's life. And so that created this opportunity to say, okay, let's together as a team try to figure out what are the stressors that we have in our lives. And instead of having a relationship where the manager is responsible solely for helping that individual employee solve their challenges. We're now co-creating. We're, we're doing peer-to-peer -peer coaching to try to solve each other's problems and that we have this social commitment, the social contract as a team to cross the finish line together. And that was a really powerful way for her to be able to understand what was her team's level of resilience, the baseline, and then be able to figure out, okay, what do we do about it? Now, I, I'd love to help teach your audience this really simple practice that I think is really powerful. Once you do this level of uh, diagnostic, just, you know, once uh, every two weeks, every three weeks, then what do you do about it? Well, I think it's really important that team leaders role model the behavior that they want to see. And that means actually sharing a bit of uh, vulnerability about what's going on in their lives. I really like this question that we ask. We encourage our clients and people to really think about. It's a really simple question. It's called, what's sweet and what's sour in your life? <laughs> very evocative way to ask the question at the end. It's really simple and it's just a very elegant question to open the aperture to invite your team members to get to know you better. And what's sweet is something that's very happy in your life, things are going well, something that's sour maybe isn't going as, as well. And the whole idea is how do you uh, ask this question to really better understand what's going on in people's lives on your team. So that way then you can have a context for uh, de-stressing some of those challenges that they come across. That's a good, succinct way of putting it. And it also gives you that evaluation in a nutshell. We'll have more with Kian in a moment. We're going to a break right now. Please stay tuned. And for more on his work, go to his website, leadersguide.org. That's leadersguide.org. And his new book is called, which he co-authored is called, Competing in the New World of Work. We'll be back in just a moment. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church. Each week on the show, you get the latest news, information, and inspiration in this whole field of healing, as well as techniques you can use in your life. For more on my latest book, Bliss Brain, go to my website, blissbrain.com. You can get a free copy there, and you can also get eight free meditations 
We've been doing EEG and MRI studies now of people using the meditations, and they literally start to change the anatomy of your brain within a month. So it's worth picking up those meditations at blissbrain.com and applying those meditations in your daily practice. For more about Kian's work, go to his website, leadersguide.org, and his new co-author is called Competing in the New World of Work. Kian, one thing that strikes me is that when you mentioned Harvard Business Review and doing that project for the, the journal, um, there is academic research into work, and then there's real-time, real-need application of that, and the kinds of situations that home people found themselves in. So all of us, as in a leadership role in our, our organization, we're faced with these crises, sometimes unpredictable crises, and suddenly we have to adapt. And that's really where either our ability to innovate shows up, or if we can't, companies really flounder. And of course, we've all seen some companies, especially the older companies, really having a hard time making that adaptation to this new world. I do think you can teach an old dog new tricks. And <laughs> I, I'm proud to have uh, witnessed that with uh, many clients and organizations that I've coached over the last two years. And I'd love to share with you an example that I think would be really useful. So Unilever, which makes a, a variety of consumer products, including Dove and a bunch of other name brand consumer products. They had a hard time in 2020, as like most companies did, because they were just trying to muddle through it. And at the end of the year, the CEO, uh, Fabian Garcia, and the chief HR officer, Mike Clementi, really wanted to rethink how they did work and how they did their strategic planning for the next year. And so instead of like basically going top down and asking and defining what the parameters would be for success for the next year, they said, well, actually, let's do bottom up. Let's instead think about using the digital tools that we have all of a sudden at our disposal and leaning into ideas and outsourced the suggestions from our top leadership. And so they actually asked the top 300 managers to come up with ideas of what their priorities should be for 2021. And they came up with 90 different ideas. And together, they actually developed six key priorities that they wouldn't have thought about in the past that they then implemented in 2021. Now, why am I sharing this with you? It's because, again, to so the idea that older organizations or more established companies can innovate if you teach them new ways of thinking. And so giving them a practical guide of how to do that. And so in this particular example, when they asked their top 300 managers to really ideate, come up with new solutions to a particular problem, what that required was that the team had to think differently and they had to set aside time on their calendars for what we call asynchronous deep collaboration time, asynchronous thinking to be able to come up with these new ideas. And the second thing that was really important was that these tools like Zoom and Teams really allowed us to maximize inclusion. And what I mean by inclusion is this idea that everybody on the team feels like that they belong. From our research, we found that 74% of people are conflict avoidant, which means if you're in a meeting, they don't want to raise their hand, they don't want to share their ideas because maybe they're shy or maybe their ideas aren't flushed out enough. But if three quarters of the people in your organization aren't sharing their ideas, you're losing so much valuable input. And so how do you capture that kind of ideas by making sure that everybody is heard? And these digital tools allow us to do that. When you're in a one-way town hall in person, you know, the leadership team might have a conversation or say something from the stage and it's just one way. But these digital tools really allow us to not hear everybody. And Unilever was really able to do that in an excellent way. And here's a tip that I would love to give to your listeners. Uh, when you're thinking about making sure everybody on your team is heard, that there's maximum inclusion, our research found that using Zoom and going into small breakout rooms is really critical to create a level of psychological safety where people feel like that their voices can be heard and that their ideas can then be shared. And we found actually the right number of people 
the magic number of people who should be in a, a Zoom room is four. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about that, um, if you're having these kind of conversations, you say, I want all voices heard, but then, you know, you hear crickets. Well, maybe it's because you're actually leading your meetings incorrectly. And now we have got these digital tools like Zoom that allow us to really rethink how do we hear everybody and make sure those voices are included. So I really encourage you when you think about how do you lead meetings is to have a very small, short introduction for two or three minutes or five minutes by the problem owner and then send everybody into small Zoom rooms of four people maximum and then bring them back for the second half of the the meeting. And what we found is that the level of drop-off and willingness to share from the Zoom room to the larger audience is only 10%, which means everybody now is much more willing to share. And they feel that first they had a psychologically safe space to give their ideas. And then when they come back, they feel that they were already heard and now they can share that with a broader group. So this was a really powerful tool that Unilever implemented as they were going through their strategic plan. So this idea of organizations struggling with innovation, it's true, but I really deeply believe that you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but you have to reframe and you have to teach them the tools and use them properly. It's not just you give them Zoom and they have a a one-way town hall with 5,000 people. And so I love this idea of how do you create this kind of psychological safety, which, which these digital tools like Zoom and Microsoft Teams really allow us to do. And we just have to use them correctly and use the, and create the right kinds of questions to get the kinds of uh, answers that we want from our teams. You know, I hadn't thought about this before, Kian, because I teach a lot of workshops, many of them on Zoom. And I've realized, just as I think about it, that some people are really comfortable sharing the group. Other people are much more comfortable typing in chat. Others are much more comfortable in the Zoom rooms. Mm. Some want to raise their hand, be acknowledged, be unmuted by the host, and then they share. And then we always look at people who aren't sharing. And I'll, I'll have a segment where I'll say, I'd love to hear from people who haven't shared yet, and then we'll encourage people to share. I also tend to, this is from old training back in the 60s and 70s, but the fact then we were coached in the human potential movement to look for people who were possibly overlooked or disadvantaged, people of color, people of various kinds of, maybe people of an accent, or who in some way might be marginalized. Not necessarily they necessarily are marginalized, but they might be, so we would work with them. And I know, for example, I usually, for my first demonstration in a workshop, I'll work with someone of color, and that suddenly changes the entire ability of everyone in the room to share. When you do that, suddenly everything shifts and then everyone starts to speak more freely. So it's like this hidden signal is giving permission to everyone to uh, to start to share. So there are lots of things you're right. There are lots of things leaders can do proactively. They'll be much more successful in that top-down approach. One-way communication you're, you're talking about is, I'm so glad we're finally having a, a wake and a burial ceremony and consigning that to the graveyard of dead ideas. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I think what we found was that these asynchronous collaboration tools, whether it was working on Zoom or whether in chat or email, people who felt, like you said, potentially marginalized, maybe if they were people of color or if they were introverted, they actually found working in a remote and hybrid environment much more comfortable and much more, they were much more effective and productive in their uh, over the last two years. And so we found for some people, their level of productivity dramatically increased. And I think we have a bias that we think that people who are uh, exceedingly extroverted and let's say like to be in front of people or like talking a lot, they're natural leaders. And I think that's just a bias that we have. We have to check that as we think about how do we make sure all voices are included, people who maybe not, don't have those same kind of characteristics that we do. And these digital tools and these platforms are really, really powerful to make us allow us to have that kind of inclusivity, which is what I'm really excited about as we go forward to work 
that we don't go back to the ways that we used to lead and we used to have management conversations and team conversations, but we consciously and purposefully design our processes to make sure that people feel comfortable to share in whichever capacity they want, whether it's visually or virtually or on chat or in person. And when we come back, let's talk about productivity and productivity in the work from home environment. You're listening to High Energy Health. My name is Dawson Church. For more on Kian's work, visit his website, which is leadersguide.org. We'll be right back after a break. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church, and each week on the show, I bring you innovative ideas, especially ones you can put into action in your own work, your own world, for your own well-being. For more on my newest book, Blissbrain, go to the website blissbrain.com and make sure you download the eight free meditations you get along with the book there, because we're showing that they produce real effects in the brain over a course of just four weeks. For more on my guest Kian's work, go to his website, leadersguide.org. That's leadersguide.org. Let's go now to the, the third of those four ideas of resilience. And one of the things that struck me when I dug into the research on PTSD and post-traumatic growth was that studies show that about three quarters of people actually, after a disaster, they bounce back and a lot of them bounce back stronger than before, actually grow as a result. And that's this phenomenon of post-traumatic growth. About a quarter of people go start to spiral down and eventually wind up with PTSD. And so resilience is really important to individuals and to teams. And so that's one of the, the things you found key, one of those four key characteristics that was central to that that radical adaptability. Let's go into that a bit more in the segment. You know, resilience is the practice of making sure that you are recovering from a really challenging activity and that you're able to then climb that next hill that might be even more challenging, but to do it even more simply than you did the first hill. And it's sort of like an analogy is going to the gym and you're learning a new sport or uh, you know, you don't become an Olympic gymnast champion overnight. You have to keep practicing until you get better at it. And along the way, that there are challenges. You might get injured in an activity or you might be sore from exercise, from going to the gym. And the key to resilience really is to making sure that you have the downtime after a really heavy, let's say, training experience to make sure that your muscles recuperate. It's no different than when you go to the gym. And so when at work, um, you are dealing with something that is very complicated or has required tremendous amount of effort, it's really critical to then build in that level of downtime to make sure that you have mental time to recuperate from the really difficult challenge that you've just accomplished as a team. And so that downtime is really critical is sort of when the muscles grow uh, when you exercise is when your muscles are resting and sleeping. And that's what's so critical in teams as well. And the organizations that really allow for this kind of resilience and this downtime are the ones that are really thriving. There are some others that are really high pressure places and people ac accomplish great things, but their level of tenure there isn't very long because they burn out because 
because they just don't have that level of, of resilience built into that kind of culture, which is really critical. I'd love to tell you a little bit about sort of like productivity and sort of like what we learned about how do you do that best in a hybrid world. And, you know, one of the things that people say or have heard the last couple of months is, oh, now we can finally get back to work. And that, that phrase just really annoys me because we've been working really hard for the last two plus years. And so we've just been working very differently. And I think those of us who, uh, you know, I'm in 40s, I'm Gen X, you know, people like us who have a couple decades of experience in, in management and, and leadership, we think that uh, productivity is measured by being in person. And we think that, you know, we're not being productive by working at home. So we need to get people back into the office. And I think that that is a false dichotomy. And that's a myth that I would like to dispel. We found that productivity actually dramatically increases when you give people the autonomy to be able to determine when they get the work done. So I'll, get, I'll share with you an example. Twitter, uh, the CEO Jack Dorsey, late in 2019, even before the pandemic started, said, I want you to work from wherever you feel most productive and most creative. And that was very revolutionary at the time. And so then obviously the pandemic started a few months later and people did start working <laughs> remotely. And when we connected with the uh, chief HR officer, Jennifer Christie, some time back, they told us that the level of attrition at Twitter or the last two years has decreased by double digits mm. because people feel a lot more valuable and that they are productive working autonomously and at home. Now, that might change with the oncoming acquisition of Twitter by <laughs> Elon Musk. Um, he has a very different perspective of, of what productivity means, and that's fine. I think there is no one-size-fits-all answer for every company in the world. But what I really want to impress here is that I don't think we can measure productivity by being in person. I think we have to measure productivity by objectives. And I'd love to share with you an example. There is a small company in, in Seattle, Washington called the Igor Institute, and they design hardware pieces for the medical devices industry. So they're like an engineering consultancy, small company. And uh, in the early days of the pandemic, when everybody was working remotely, for the first time in the company's history, the CEO, Aaron Kayser, realized that they were missing deadlines. And he was trying to figure out why that was. Part of it was because engineers who are very easy to ask each other when they're working in the same office or in the same cube, hey, how do you do this? They can ask each other very simply. But when they actually have to type that into chat or email, like, I don't know how to do this, that create, that raises the level of vulnerability required to ask for help. And so he had this really elegant solution. He said, if you've got a question and you don't know how to solve the problem, why don't you pick up the phone and call your colleague and ask a question? Trying to schedule a Zoom meeting or Slack. And it, likewise, if you were in the office, you'd walk down the hallway. If their door was open, you'd knock and ask a question. So we should have a company culture of asking questions on the phone. If they're available, they'll answer. If not, no worries. And the second thing he found out was that in terms of productivity, there are some times when it behooves them to work in person. So the very early phases of deep, intensive collaboration, it did. It was better for them to be working in person, whether that was in the office or a third space. But for parts of the project that were more about optimization and process improvement, that kind of work can be done at home. And it was very productive to be done in a virtual format. And so the learning here is that there are different levels of collaboration and different levels of productivity. And rather than saying everybody is more productive by being in person, we found in our research that the smartest teams and organizations were mapping the universe of tasks that they had to accomplish and then saying, okay, when can this get done? Can this get done in a virtual way? Can this get done asynchronously? Or does this particular task need to be done in person? So I want your, your audience to be a lot smarter about thinking about what productivity means. It's not just being in person, but it's really taking all these new tools that we've had for the last two years and really designing purposefully how to get work done better.
Let's talk about that more in the last segment and also where it's going to take us in the future. So how do we get work done better as we move into what's likely to be another very different era of work ahead of us? You're listening to High Energy Health. Please stay tuned. We're going to a break right now, but please come back and join us for the final segment. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church, and I love sharing with you every week on the show. Make sure you bookmark this and then you listen to future episodes, download them, have them handy. Whenever you want to fill your mind with inspiration, you know where to go. Don't get lost in anxiety or stress and then try and figure out where to go. Download the show, download positive media, have those things on tap so the moment you feel yourself slipping, you know where to go, and you can rescue yourself right away with a pre-planned intervention like High Energy Health. So I love sharing with you, and there's lots, there are hundreds of episodes here that'll inspire you. Also, to get my new book, This Brain, go to the website, thisbrain.com. And for more on Kian's work, go to his website, leadersguide.org. His new book is Competing in the, in the New World of Work. So Kian, to wrap up here, I know you are an expansive thinker. And when you're working with a company, of course, you have to come up with a solution and they have a problem and it's limited time engagement and there's there's a, a result at the end of it that's expected of you. But if we just remove all of those constraints in your thinking, I'd love to hear you just speculate about the work, the world of work come in the next decade, even the next century. Yeah, I think so. So thank you for that question. I'm a trained futurist and I did that for so many years at the XPRIZE Foundation and at Singularity in Silicon Valley. And what that means is that I help design models for what the future may look like. Now, if anybody tells you that they can accurately predict the future, don't believe them, including futurists <laughs> like me, because the, the future is, is not linear. It is multivariable and it can go in many different directions. But our job as futurists is to help organizations and teams identify trend points and what a future state can look like and then help them work backwards to really um, develop the competencies and skill sets and experiences to get there. And so when I think, and I put my, when I put my futurist hat on about uh, and look to this particular domain, which is the, the world of work, I think there's one big trend that people are not talking about. So over the last you know 30 plus years, we saw globalization dramatically shift the, the 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 distribution of manufacturing work from highly developed economies to lower developed economies across the world because they had lower inputs in terms of cost of labor. And so we saw manufacturing really leave America, leave a lot of uh, European countries and go to uh, lower cost countries in Asia. And all of a sudden we've seen in the last two years because of the pandemic and because of supply chain issues and because of border controls for pandemic health reasons, uh, we've seen a dramatic slowdown in this shift of uh, globalization of manufacturing work to lower cost countries. And we've actually seen a reversal where uh, com- countries have said for our critical industries around healthcare and other things, we need to have them back in our country or ne- near our country. So we've seen uh, in the last 30 years, a, a massive shift of work um, for lower cost labor manufacturing to other parts of the world. And then that's sl- slowed in the last two years. Here's what 
what people are not talking about. We, because of the pandemic and because of these virtual technologies that we have right now, we will see over the next 10 years a globalization of knowledge work. And when we used to think that, you know, blue collar work or manufacturing can get outsourced, but white collar work and knowledge work is so critical, it has to be, you know, local, it has to be right next to, you know, where we are in, in you know, in the US or Canada or Europe, I think that's going to shift dramatically because everybody now has access to these technologies and there are billions of people with creative uh, talent who you can tap into to help you solve knowledge-related work. And that doesn't mean that they're just focused in developing economies, but they're literally everywhere around the world. And so I have a team that works for me abroad that helps me with marketing and ideation. Um, and they, uh, they, you know, they're not based here in the US. And so these technologies of Zoom and virtual world, I think what they're going to have uh, impact over the next 10 years is that we're going to see a mass globalization of knowledge work um, and white collar work. And I think in general, that will have positive impacts. But again, it's going to have local impacts as well that people are going to be concerned about. And so this is what people aren't talking about. And so what does that mean when we have knowledge work like accounting and maybe even some uh, legal support work, marketing that done here domestically, but now can get done offshore for significantly lower costs. And I think that's going to have a lot of impact for people who are in those industries. And when they used to think that they wouldn't be disrupted, I think that's actually going to uh, be a big shift. And that's pe- that's something that policymakers and people really aren't speaking about. Yeah. And then just generally, like those big questions of reductions in, in certain jobs, and then reductions in the workforce as a whole, and then automation, and, and all of those factors, nanotechnology, AI, robotics, where are those taking work, say, over the next 50 years? Yeah. I mean, I think what's going to happen is that we're going to li- be living in a bionic age side by side with automation and robots. And I think humans will have access to all kinds of information immediately as they need it. So you're going to have a democratized access to knowledge. And so that's going to help you get things done faster, cheaper, more effectively. This idea of foresight, I think is really critical for teams to learn. And not many companies are really good at it. They, they do this kind of exercise when and they're in a crisis, they got to figure their way out of it. But the teams that are building this muscle for foresight, for learning to look around corners to see what the future may hold, I think is really critical. And I'd love to kind of just share a very short example of that with you um, so that your audience can learn. There's a company called Lockheed Martin Space, which uh, creates satellites and launches them into outer space for telecommunications. And in early 2020, the CEO, this guy named Rick Ambrose, figured out that there might be something going on because of the coronavirus in China. And so he tasked people on his team to follow particular variables that were going to impact their industry. And very quickly, he realized by the end of January 2020 that this was going to have major implications. And he shifted his model, his business, his team entirely virtual two months before the lockdowns happened in the US. And and as a result, they never missed a beat and they launched 10 satellites in 2020. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is that he had a very uh, elegant practice of foresight. And everybody, I think, can learn this. And what I would recommend to your uh, listeners is this. Identify the variables that are going to impact your organization, whether it's technology or whether that's politics or regulation or environment, and ask your team members to follow them. Become a mini expert in them and really track them on LinkedIn or Twitter. And once a month, crowdsource and ask them, did you see anything in that realm that is going to potentially impact us? And if so, then let's do something about it. And let's not just bury our heads in the sand. That's the idea of really building foresight within your team. So regardless of where technology goes, regardless of where politics or policy or the environment goes, your team can start to read the early signals of change and that they can anticipate and predict and be radically adaptable for the future. It also gets you out of the rut of the known and your job description and what's right in front of you. And we 
tend to get very sucked into that. It's hard to, to wrench our mind out and think those big picture thoughts. So that helps shift our focus. And then that alone is going to have an effect. And we may bring in useful ideas. So the ideas we, we notice might not be fruitful in the, in the business, but at least that act of thinking big for a while, looking out there beyond your limited responsibilities is probably going to really affect your worldview and then in turn affect what you contribute to the world around you, including your world of work. So it's a powerful exercise regardless of what you're doing to, to, to be a futurist, a little bit of a futurist. <laughs> exactly. And it's, it's a great way of, of training your mind to turning challenges into opportunities. And instead of seeing for the problems, but rather seeing a problem will always resolve itself and create new opportunities. And how can you really train your mind to identify how to do that and where those opportunities in the future lie? Well, Kian, thank you so much for sharing this with us. And thank you, thank you for helping us train our minds to take that perspective. And I really am grateful for your work, your huge view of the world, and your helping show us where our view of work fits into it. Thanks again. Thank you, Dawson. I'm really grateful uh, and honored uh, to be here and and for your friendship and really thankful for that. Yeah, ditto. Thanks for listening to High Energy Health again. You have taken a choice to to bring this inspiration and these practical ideas into your into your life. Please do do this on a regular basis. Join us regularly every week for a new episode. I'm Dawson Church. You've been listening to High Energy Health. I look forward to sharing with you next week. Till then, stay healthy, stay happy, and all the best. Thank you.